Our passage this morning is in Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. So if you care to turn in your Bibles, you will be in the right place. You know, as we sing hymns and as we preach and teach the Word of God and as we live together in unity, as we proclaim the message of our King and His kingdom, and as we love one another, as we pray together, as we live in obedience to the commands of Jesus, it is in these things that we express our love for Him and put the gospel on display to a desperately sick and dying world, a world that needs the healing touch of our Savior and the death-conquering message of the gospel. My sermon this morning is a two-part sermon. Um, your admission price won't change. You'll just get twice as much sermon for your money this morning. The first part is anchored in the text, and I think it's straightforward, and I think it's a very applicable uh, passage to us today. Uh, it'll be easy to understand, and the way I present it this morning, I think, is probably close to how those who heard Jesus tell the parable 2,000 years ago would have understood it. Bear in mind that when Jesus told this parable, the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension had not yet happened. Keep that in mind as we take a look at the parable. Part two of this sermon will take us much deeper into the mysteries of the cross. I hope that you have a sense by the end of our time together today, as I have standing here right now, that God's hand is at work in this church, orchestrating our time together, the messages and the way that the messages are created and delivered. So from the music this morning, I could not have chosen better songs. Um, so I believe that it was God who was at work choosing those. I could not have asked Pat to pray a more pertinent prayer uh, to mesh with the second part of today's message. So I hope that by the time our assembly concludes today, that you will have a message that, or a feeling or sense a confidence that God is at work today in our church and in our lives um, to accomplish his purposes and his will that who we are in Christ Jesus would magnify the name of Jesus and glorify God, our Father. But to accomplish any of these aims today, God must be the one working in us all. So let's turn to him now and ask for his necessary help this morning. Father. I am a sinner, and you are holy, 
I'm guilty, but you are the righteous judge. I stand condemned, and your wrath awaited me. Yet the bitterness of your wrath is something I've not tasted. I've only known the sweetness of your mercy. So where did my guilt go? How was it that I was declared innocent? Did you, O God, profane holy justice when bestowing mercy on me? Father, I pray that this morning you would take us into the mysteries of the cross. Show us the horror and show us the beauty of Calvary. Dash our arrogance and pride to pieces at the foot of the cross. Help us. Take our eyes from ourselves this morning and turn them to Jesus. Cause us to be shattered by the beauty of our King. Break our hearts in grief for our sins. Cause us to cry out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Break us at the cross. Then mercifully put us back together as we should be. Wash us in the cleansing blood of your Son. Make us holy. Hide us away in Christ, who is the rock that was cleft for us. Forgive us. Have mercy on us. Magnify your Son. Glorify yourself in him. And because of his atoning, perfect, complete, faultless work on the cross, glorify yourself also in us this morning. Amen. Part one, the unrighteous judge and the persistent widow. Luke 18, verse one. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who, who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The main point of this parable is simple. It's that the faithful pray and they do not lose heart.
Jesus uses the story of a widow, an adversary, and a judge to help his listeners understand this point. So let's examine what the text tells us about these three people. First, the judge. The parable introduces him first, so shall we. And let's begin with a definition. What is a judge? Well, according to Merriam-Webster, a judge is one who makes judgments, such as a public official authorized to decide questions brought before a court. In society, disputes among its citizens or between citizens and the government take the form of arguments that are brought before a judge. The judge hears the case and renders a decision based on the merits of the case before the law. Ideally, the laws the judge applies to the case are just, and from them he renders an unbiased decision. Society usually considers that justice has been served when an honest, unbiased judge renders a decision after attentively hearing both sides of a matter, then delivering a judgment that is rooted in law. We call this justice. Now, the judge in our parable was not this kind of judge. His job was to represent, preserve, and render justice when disputes arose among the people he judged. What was the foundation from which he adjudicated? Was it fear of God? No. Was it a respect for his fellow man? No. What then was the basis for this judge's rendering of justice? His basis was self. It was not until the widow pestered him to the point of annoyance that he responded and did his duty. This man did not serve God. He did not serve the community. He did not serve even helpless widows. He served himself. He was a wicked, terrible judge. The adversary. Text doesn't give us specifics about this person. We do not know if the adversary was male or female. All we know is that the adversary conflicted with the widow and was apparently unwilling to settle their dispute and reconcile with the widow. That's what we know about the adversary. The widow, well, in the first century Israel, a widowed woman was not likely to be at the apex of society. That certainly appears to be the case with the widow in this parable. Given what we know about her character or the character of the judge, this widow apparently had no position or power or money to persuade him to give her justice. She was likely a woman of very modest means, living alone, 
without male relatives to protect her against her adversaries. But what she lacked in money, in power, and in position, she made up for in persistence. She wanted justice, and she knew where it was, where it was to be found. In her pursuit of justice, she was not the kind of woman to be dissuaded by a lazy, negligent, obstinate judge. In this battle of wills, the widow's persistent overpowered the judge's self-centered laziness. In the end, the widow got justice. She got it from an unjust judge who neither feared God nor respected man. This is a story of the triumph of a persistent pursuit of just, justice against an adversary. Jesus then contrasts the wicked judge to God. And this is what the text says. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. In basic terms, Jesus was contrasting a self-serving, uncaring judge who would not respond to appeals for justice to God, who is everything opposite the wicked judge. Jesus assures his listeners that God is attentive to the elect, to those who hear his voice and respond. Jesus tells his listeners that God is nothing like this slow-to-respond judge who ignores the widow and refuses to give her justice. God hears the voice of his elect who cry to him day and night. And does he hear and then drag his heel like the wicked judge? He does not. Jesus says that God responds to his elect who cry to him day and night speedily. Now imagine yourself. 2,000 years ago, you're there and you're listening to Jesus tell this parable. You're hearing it with your own ears. What would your takeaway be? Would the parable leave you thinking about how corrupt the legal system is? Would you identify with the widow? Might you be carrying the unresolved burden of some injustice done to you? Would you be longing for a wrong done to you to be made right? Or even perhaps this morning you felt a sting when I spoke of the unforgiving, unrelenting, unreconcilable adversary. Is there someone you have wronged, someone who has just cause against you this morning? Someone who would seek justice against you? These are all possible responses to this parable. But the response that Jesus wanted to produce in his listeners is to remind us 
to continue in prayer. And as we do, do not lose heart. Why? Because if justice can be found even in a wicked judge who neither loves God nor respects man, then how much more can we be confident that God will hear the cries of his people and give them justice? Because of the character and faithfulness of God, we need not lose heart. And Jesus concludes this parable with a question. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This question that Jesus asked that day is equally addressed this generation, we yet await the return of Jesus. Our hope is that he returns soon. My hope is that he re returns right now, this moment. But if he returns today, will he find a world of faithless people? Or will he find faith being embodied and evidenced in people, people like you and me, who pray constantly and consistently and never lose heart in our trust of God and his faithfulness? Will he find you full of hope? in God's faithfulness, looking beyond your circumstances and always trusting in the promises of a faithful and just God. If Jesus finds us persistently and constantly praying with hopeful hearts, trusting the faithfulness of God, then indeed he will find faith on earth when he returns. So by way of application, frequent prayer and a confident heart is evidence to Jesus of true faith in you. Frequent prayer and a conf with a confident heart is evidence to Jesus of true faith in you. Amen. End of part one. Part two. The problem of justice. Our passage today mentioned justice. We live in an age that is agitated and enraged. People cry out constantly with demands for justice. People march in protest. They post their positions on social media. They write articles. They communicate their propositions in classrooms, in movies, in TV programs, in books, on signs, on T-shirts. 
They energetically state their demands for social justice, racial justice, environmental justice, economic justice, gender justice, and legal justice. People seem to have the position in mass that this world is rife with injustice and that a good deal of it has been against them personally. There was a musician uh, that I was keen on when I was young, and there's a, a line in one of his songs that goes something like this. Everyone wants to see justice done on someone else. To listen to the voice of those who are seeking justice in our world today is to conclude that they think the world would become perfect if only everyone got the full measure of the justice they deserve. Let's explore that idea for a moment. I'm going to call on you to use your imaginations a couple of times in the remainder of this sermon. So what I want you to imagine right now, if you can, is a universe without even one ounce of sin in it. Challenging. But in this universe, there has not been one rebellious act against its creator. Not one. Everything in this universe is precisely as its maker intended it. Everything is harmonious. Everything is beautiful. In this sinless universe, there is no need for justice, for there's never been a wrong committed. There is no need for forgiveness, for no offense has been given. There is no need for redemption, for nothing has been lost. There is no need for healing because nothing is broken or sick. Now imagine that in this perfect universe, a single sin is committed. Into a creation that did not make itself a tear in the perfectly designed fabric that God created has been made. An ugly, hideous wound now mars the creator's perfect work. Now I want to pose a question to you. In that moment, when that first sin mars God's creation, to whom in that moment was injustice done to? Sin, by its very definition, is that which is against God. Wayne Grudem writes, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, in attitude or nature. 
And you see that the first sin committed in creation was against God. And every sin since then is also against God. David acknowledged this in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. If you know the story of David's life, you may think, hmm, seems like his sins may have been a little broader than against God only. I think the reason that David says this is he understands the point that we're trying to make this morning. In its most basic sense, every sin is sin against God. So my question that arises from this thought is, if all my sin is against God, then to whom is justice due? It is certainly not due to me, the sinner. When I sin, my sin is first and foremost against my creator who commands me to be holy as I am holy. When I sin, when you sin, who is our sin primarily and most seriously against? I'm confident that the answer is God. I was born a sinner. Sinfulness was in the DNA of my soul. I did not require lessons in sin. I was a prodigy from birth. Had I been abandoned on a deserted island in my infancy and raised by wild beasts, I would have become a proficient sinner even there. There is no noble savage. Our problem doesn't come from our environment, our parents, our surrounding, our culture. Our problem comes from within. We're not sinners because society contaminates us. We are the pathogen. And because I'm a sinner by nature, I alone would have been sufficient to pollute a perfect, sinless universe. That is my plight as a sinner. I cannot help but sin against God, and having done so, I'm helpless to clean up the mess. In my natural state, I can and will only transgress against God. When I then consider the utter horror of my sin, staining the perfect beauty of God's creation, when I feel the weight of my guilt, when helplessness drowns me in a sea of hopelessness, when I realize that my cries for justice, for petty wrongs done to me, pale when compared to the injustice that God has suffered at my hands, 
My cries for justice are like the mewling of a newborn kitten compared to the roar of a lion. It is God who has the greater right for justice. It is God who has been more greatly wrong. It is God to whom justice is due, and only if and when the justice that God deserves has been satisfied and perfect order be restored to his creation. Do you see the truth in this? Are you glimpsing the magnitude of your problem in mind? Do you feel the weight this morning of your predicament? Ours is not a speeding ticket kind of problem. We cannot pay a fine and go about our business. My sin and your sin were sufficient to ruin the perfection of God's creation. Creation declares the glory of God and our sin marred it. So when this sinner stands before God, the last thing I will want from God is justice. God's justice will come in the form of holy wrath poured out on me without restraint and without mercy. If my hope for salvation is rooted in getting justice before God's judgment seat, I am irrevocably doomed. In the presence of God, my only desire will be for mercy. But how can God be merciful to a guilty man? How can justice be satisfied without the guilty being accountable for their sin? Can sin be excused and the sinner go unpunished and justice be satisfied? No, that can't happen. There is no overlooking sin. There can be no let bygones be bygones and justice be satisfied. Now let me call upon your imagination again. I want you to put yourself in this situation. Imagine that a horrific crime has been done against a loved one of yours. Let's imagine that this loved one was brutally and faultlessly murdered. Picture the killer apprehended and then taken to trial. In the trial, the, killer, the killer's guilt is established beyond doubt. In fact, the killer admits his guilt. Murder has been committed and the murderer has confessed to the deed. The judge has no choice but to convict. The murderer must be punished. 
Justice demands it. But instead of convicting the murderer, the judge announces to the court, today is a good day for me. The sun is shining, the flowers are blooming. I am in a good mood. My wife is preparing my favorite meal. I feel merciful. Then he turns to the murderer and says, I'm going to show you mercy. I declare you innocent. You are free to go. Enjoy your life. What would you feel in that moment? How would you respond to the mercy of this judge? The man who took the life of your loved one has just been declared innocent and set free. Can you feel the storm of emotions that would be raging inside of you? You would almost certainly conclude this is an unjust, wicked judge. Does this story help you see how justice and mercy are incompatible with one another? The two things, justice and mercy, cannot be reconciled. They cannot exist together. Each is antithetical to the other. But what are the implications for sinners like you and like me? We do not want God's justice against us. We want mercy. But how can God, who is just, show mercy to the guilty? In a few weeks, Brian will be preaching on a passage in which Jesus makes the statement, what is impossible with man is possible with God. God has accomplished the impossible. He has reconciled justice and mercy. When and where did this impossible thing happen? It happened at Calvary. It happened as the sinless Son of God was nailed to a Roman cross. It is there on that cross and there only that justice and mercy are reconciled. That is where the guilty, you and me, are simultaneously shown the justice of God by the suffering of the man on that cross and the mercy of God in the forgiveness that the man on that cross won for us. It is there at the cross, I see the wrath of God poured out for my sins. But his righteous wrath, his justice is not poured out on me, the sinner, the murderer. It is poured out on his innocent son as he hangs in agony, nailed through hands and feet to a cruel cross. To understand the justice that, demand, that is demanded for my sins, I need only to muster the courage to look at the beloved Son of God, 
becoming the focus of God's wrath as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who never knew a moment of separation from his Father, experienced what awaits every sinner. The agony of God turning his face away from us. Jesus stood in my place, experiencing what I deserved, fulfilling God's judgment that was coming to me. Justice for my guilt was satisfied as Christ stood in my place and received God's justice for me. As my Savior's life drained from him, he spoke these precious words. It is finished. There at the cross, justice was satisfied and mercy can now be found. We are like the guilty murderer. Our guilt is not in doubt and justice must be done, and the punishment must, must fit the crime. Will the just judge of all creation pervert justice and give us mercy? No, he will not. The just righteous judge declared us guilty, then stepped down from behind his bench, took off his robe, and took upon himself the punishment for our sin. He paid the price we owed. He took the wrath we deserved. And he became justice for us. And because of that, because of the cross, God offers us mercy. It's at the cross that I feel my deep, deepest shame and my greatest joy. At the cross, the glory and wisdom of God is seen and put on display for all creation. At the cross, I learn who I am. I'm a vile sinner. But at the cross, I also learn that I am loved and I have been redeemed by a glorious Savior. At the cross, I exchange death for life. At the cross, my rebellious hatred of God is shattered by his grace, gracious, merciful love displayed in his Son. At the cross, God's mercy becomes precious to me. Because it is at the cross that I see what the mercy that he has given me cost him.
I hope this morning you understand justice a little better. I hope you see that what this world is screaming for today is a misplaced and misunderstood demand for justice. It is God to whom justice is due. And the justice that is due God is the result of my sin and your sin. And it is God who will receive justice for all the sin that has been done to him. The only question each of us must answer is whether we intend to give God justice or receive the mercy that was purchased for us when Christ received the wrath we deserved on the cross. Will we satisfy God's justice? Not if we understand what that means. So how will we choose today? Will you choose to satisfy God's justice? Because he will get his justice. Or will you choose the mercy that was purchased for us and is offered to us by Christ's death on the cross. I hope you'll not waste another moment pursuing justice in this world. The injustices of this world are not our biggest problem. Turn to Jesus. Turn to the Savior who satisfied justice on behalf of those who put their trust in him. Do not place your hope in defending yourself against God's judgment. Instead, receive his mercy through Jesus. There's nothing more precious than, the, than to feel the weight of sin lifted from your back. We sing a song, we sing a hymn, on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. My prayer for you this morning is that you will come to the cross of Jesus and find God's mercy there while there is yet breath in you. Do it today before the door of God's mercy is closed forever and all that you will know for all eternity is the justice of God. End of part two. Amen. This morning, we spoke of justice and we spoke of the cross. I hope my poor attempts to put on display the glories of Calvary gave you a glimpse into the greatness of our amazing God who sent his son that whoever would believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life. For those who have believed in Jesus, those who have heard the Savior's call, come, follow me. We have left the sac we have been left the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It is a memorial designed to lead our wandering minds and hearts to remember 
to remember Jesus. That is what these next few moments are all about, remembering the cross, remembering the Son of God who suffered there to forgive and justify sinners like you and like me. So we invite you this morning to consider Christ, to consider the mercy of God that is offered at Calvary, and to turn to Christ. Take him as your substitute. Take him as your atoning Lamb of God. Be cleansed by his blood and have the weight of sin and God's judgment lifted from your shoulders. If that's you this morning, then we invite you to come and partake in the Lord's Supper. Um, if that's not you, uh, I know that these words are weighty this morning. God's word tells us that today, today is the day of salvation. If you're sitting here this morning and the breath of life is still in you, the door of mercy has not been closed and locked against you. Avail yourself of Jesus Christ this morning. Turn to him.